Mumbrella 360 is proud to announce the first international keynote speaker for 2022. Introducing Peter Slotterdijk, the former Chief Marketing and Tech Officer at Koala. Peter is an experienced marketing leader who has served in many chief roles at companies including Netflix, Grindr, and other global advertising agencies. If you've missed out on your super early bird tickets, don't worry. You can now purchase early bird tickets to Mumbrella 360 by heading to mumbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella 360. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast and the first of 2022. I'm Callum Jaspin and joining me to break down Australia's media and marketing industry this week is our new deputy and acting editor, Andrew Banks. Banksy, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thanks, Callum. Happy 2022. Um, it's great to see you stepping into the um, hosting role. Cheers, mate. Happy to have you here. And uh, senior reporter, Anna Shepard, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here and happy new year. So a few housekeeping items just to touch off before we get into it. If you didn't catch it, our head of content, Damien Francis, has left Mumbrella a couple of weeks ago. We want to quickly give a shout out to Damo's contribution to Mumbrella over the past few years. He's really been the driving force behind Mumbrella, so we thank him for that. And our managing editor, Liv Krimmel, is now on maternity leave for the year. So best wishes to live with that. And Banksy will be stepping in as editor for the year. Later on in the episode, I will be speaking to Nikki Scriven, CEO of Zenith Media Australia, about Zenith positioning itself within the publicist's one-stop shop model, winning clients and the changing nature of pitching, and fixing the talent crisis through the new Zen Academy program. Before we get into that, we've got a couple of items to get to. Banksy, what are we going to be covering off today? Oh, I think to kick things off this year, Callum, we're going to first be discussing Rose Herseg's elevation to president of WPP Australia and New Zealand. And then we'll talk about the summer of sports coverage across each of the free-to-air broadcasters, the value each offers, and a potential play by seven to win back the tennis rights. The long-awaited replacement for Jens Mongzies at WPP was revealed on Monday morning, very timely, in fact, for the Mumbrella newsletter send. Mongzies departed the CEO role around eight to nine months ago, just prior to WPP AUNZ becoming wholly part of WPP. Rose Herzeg has now been appointed as president of WPP Australia and New Zealand, leading the group across both markets, essentially stepping into Mongzies' role, but with a different title. Her appointment was long rumoured after she had been chief of strategy for the last few years and word was that she was already running the shop towards the back end of 2021. Em, a lot of questions to be asked here, but starting off, do we know anything further since the initial announcement and how different is this to Jens's role as far as we know? Yeah, look, I did some digging after the announcement was made, uh, just you know, directly to WPP and also just some industry you know, people in the industry as well. Um, I'm hearing um, and understanding that, you know, basically the role is very similar to Jens's position as CEO of AUNZ. Uh, and I don't really think there's too much of a difference in terms of structure. Uh, I did hear from WPP uh, this morning, actually, who told me the role Rose will have as president uh, in AUNZ aligns with, uh, you know, their global WPP country leadership structure. All WPP country leaders report to COO um, Andrew Scott. 
Um, so, you know, obviously when it was WPP, AUNZ, it was, the role was named CEO. Uh, you know, WPP, PLC, when they took that ownership back again, changed to country manager. This is obviously a global, in, in, in each market globally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny you said I've kind of had a few, uh, a few responses, I guess, in terms of how the role's changing as far as I do understand um, you know, with that big appointment of uh, Amy Buchanan at Group M last year, as far as I am aware, Amy won't be reporting to into her. And um, as I understand, she'll be reporting into the Group M management. So I think that will probably be maybe the one big difference that we'll see um, in terms of the changing nature of the role since Jens. And, and also kind of doing a bit of digging myself, um, it, it seems as though this appointment is almost a response to the tenure that Jens had, sort of an anti-Jens of sorts, as it's been referred to, or uh, another one being a soft glove appointment, um, you know, kind of keep things moving along. So as I understand it, Rose's role will be sort of the orchestration of the agency brands and kind of bring together the commonality of those central services that kind of span um, all of the WPP network in Australia. Whereas, you know, now, Group M is a much more separate deal. Amy and Rose will be working together rather than one into the other. So that was, I think, one of the big questions that arose from that initial announcement that was, you know, in parts a little vague. I, I do get the sense that they wanted someone to unite the agencies, um, similar to maybe uh, Michael Rubello at Publicist Group, who oversees all of the agencies rather than just the creative and media. And this is, you know, this is everything bar media. So, you know, you've got all their kind of uh, tech agencies, the PR, creative, all of them come under um, that title, which Rose has as president. Um, as I understand it, there was a company-wide meeting yesterday with Rose and the CEOs where she outlined her vision of sorts for moving forward. Um, although, you know, again, how many brands there were there that she's uh, managing exactly, I don't know. Yeah, look, this was a long time for the role to be vacant. Why do you think it took so long, Cal? So as I understand it, there was a sense that they did want to get this one right um, following, the, uh, fo- following the tenure of Jens. As one exec at WPP told me, um, they couldn't fuck it up twice, which illustrates some of the lingering bad feelings maybe about how the Jens tenure tied up. I think the impression that I got was that Rose was the obvious hire. Um, and uh, as we suggested earlier on, you know, she was kind of rumored to be already running the shop or in that role towards the end of the last year. But, you know, they did spread that search globally just to make sure that they were um, going with the right person, which, you know, by all accounts, they are confident that they have. One industry source said that after Jens, there wasn't too many suitable candidates chasing the role, um, especially as maybe with that media agency Group M side being taken out of the remit of sorts, it's not quite the same role. And again, you know, as I mentioned, WPP has gone through quite a bit of change and disruption in the past years with some of the events that we listed. So, you know, as one external source to WPP, you know, obviously caveat that this would be a competitor said, if you look at the business and you see many hires, fires, and plenty of consolidation over the recent time, you can maybe smell that there's a few things brewing there. Yeah, I have um, had a few few callbacks from people uh, just letting me know that they do think that um, she will have power. She does have credibility in Australia in particular. Um, and, you know, what she's done for the business prior to this is, you know, absolutely 
you know, amazing. And I think after Monsey's WPP really wanted to make the local team just a bit more st- like stable, a bit, you know, that's what I'm hearing from the industry that, you know, that WPP, they just want this Australia and New Zealand to feel a little bit more stable, which is why they did the slew of promotions. You know, you had the the Chris Rollinson, who was obviously the chief financial officer, who is now the chief operating officer. Uh, you also had, you know, Tim Matheson, which will, he'll, he'll kind of be in charge of leading WPP's tech strategy um, as chief tech officer. So I really think that they're trying to cement some local local talent um, to really hold the business. And I think Rollo really just just definitely has a big, big responsibility to keep that that financial arm um, and that really good communication going, you know, from these regions back to the London office. And I know, you know, like most businesses, I think WPP, they're strongly, strongly directed and influenced by their financial team over in London. Um, and I think that that's really what they're trying to focus on. I was just going to say, it's interesting something you said before, Em, that uh, kind of commenting on that stability that they're opting for with the Rose hire. I mean, anecdotally to me in the conversations I've had is the Yen's tenure was seen as a monumental failure. Before then, John Steadman kicked off that sort of uh, process of consolidation across the brand. You know, So we have seen increasingly across WPP and Group M agencies um, so the question now will be whether with Rose in place, the consolidation, the cutting of brands, whether that will be done and dusted um, or whether it still has some ways to go. There is some contention contention as to whether Jens was offered the role, which some say he was, some say he didn't. Um, it, although, you know, it, as it was that sort of reduced role, um, word was that he initially turned it down. Some of the spicier takes that I got, which I don't necessarily buy into, but you know, I have had the suggestion that within five years, some of the um, some of the holding groups, including WPP, might actually pull out of the market completely. Again, not my words, but certainly an interesting perspective. Coming up, we will take a look at the summer of sport on free to air broadcasting. <laughs> Heading into the last month of summer, and it feels like this week is the first week back full tilt for the industry. We've ticked off some of the blockbuster sporting events of the summer, those being the Australian Open on nine, the Ashes and Big Bash League on seven, and also the A-Leagues on 10 and Paramount+. Plus. We've also got the Winter Olympics kicking off this Friday on seven. These are all pretty lucrative events for broadcasters. Uh, so to get a bit of an insight as to the value of sport, live sports for broadcasting, I had a quick chat to Nielsen's Director of Sports Sales, Steve Whiteley. Um, here is that interview now. Okay, we've got uh, Steve Whiteley, Nielsen's Director of Sports Sales, joining us for this small segment. Um, Nielsen have just uh, released some data or provided Mumbrella with some data on brand exposure value through sports broadcasting. Steve, it would help if you could start off by just kind of talking us through the data you've got here and how it was tallied and some of the um, kind of standout uh, figures there. Yeah, sure. And uh, first of all, yeah, thanks for having me on, Callum. Um, so how is this put together? Essentially, you know, we've made a commitment to the market where we're the only provider that measures this media exposure um, data. Um, we measure all partnerships all the time. Um, across all the um, all the major channels, so I'll explain what that means. So, 
Um, what we're doing is we're capturing every single exposure um, that a brand gets um, from their sponsorship within the media, and that's on um, TV, so that covers live broadcast of games. It also covers um, sports news uh, reporting, magazine shows. Um, it covers um, all the major sort of online, um, all the major websites and all the major print publications as well. So every single, um, in the case of TV, second of exposure is, co- is covered. And then what we do with that is we actually then um, value the quality of that exposure. Uh, and that quality is determined by um, the size of the logo from that exposure, how long it's exposed for, um, the position of the exposure, so how central to the screen um, is the brand and the number of brand hits. So it might be there might be multiple brands on the screen at the same time. So um, all those things go into the quality. And then, of course, we're looking at um, audience data and um, CPMs as well. Uh, and that all goes in to give this um, yeah, QI media value, um, which lives within our uh, Nielsen Stadium dashboard, which clients can access any, any partnership they want there. They can look at their own or they can look at any other partnership um, across uh, across Australia and New Zealand. So we've got the, the list. There's a couple of interesting ones there. The number one uh, in terms of um, getting value was Telstra. And then we've got Toyota, KFC, and then I know we spoke about just before um, we jumped on this call, number four was Kia, and that was, I think, a standout in terms of that partnership that they have with the Australian Open, which is obviously only two weeks of the year. Could you talk us through a little bit about how they are able to get such great value out of just such a small event? Yeah, I think that's incredible. And to me, that's certainly the most surprising um, stat when we look at the top performing partnerships and that AO and Kia partnership, as you say, is number four um, across all the partnerships. And really what's driving that is um, you think about that two-week period, um, tennis is being broadcast from, you know, sort of 11 a.m. in the morning, sometimes into the, um, you know, the wee hours of the next morning. So you've got this full sort of back-to-back coverage um, and obviously you're getting strong ratings, um, you know, Day sessions are strong, but night sessions are really strong and you're getting those ratings every day. And then, of course, it's the way that different sports are shot as well and the way that tennis is shot specifically. Those LED boards at the back of the court um, are getting really significant exposure um, and continual exposure um, through a lot of the you know the courts and in-between points as, as well. Um, is there any sort of differentiation between the value brands can get on the different broadcast providers? Because, you know, You've obviously got some standouts in the list from the different sporting codes which are aired on the different networks. I think it's more about the the sports themselves and the way that the sports are played lend themselves to um, to being shot differently. And I, I mentioned the tennis example before, but um, something like rugby league is another good example where because of the way that game is played, um, if the jersey sleeve we know um, in NRL is the, the most valuable asset um, in the marketplace. Um because they're able to shoot, um, you know, in a certain um, zoomed up format, um, zoomed in format, and and more of a side on format, um, that jersey sleeve gets great exposure um, through the broadcast. And that's really interesting. That one um, is there. Is there any other, uh, I guess, assets? Maybe the two or three that you could um, you could share with us that are kind of topping that list. Yeah, sure. And I think it it is different. This will highlight as well the difference between you know which assets are potentially more valuable in different sports. So whilst it's, you know, jersey sleeve in the NRL, um, it's it's something like that, you know, it's the LED board in AFL that actually is the the highest driver of value. Yeah. 
And then you compare that, you know, I mentioned AO, the LED backcourt end um, is the highest for them. And then you look at something like the Big Bash League where the jersey front um, is actually their top performing asset. Yeah, that's uh, certainly interesting. I noticed when I went to the tennis, um, I think it's a Chinese whiskey brand, 17. 1573. Yeah, they seem yeah. to be splashing a bit of cash on those LED backboards. So I guess you know where it's uh, where they're getting their bucks from. Well, that's, um, that's all really interesting, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us today and appreciate uh, you sharing your insights. No problems. Thanks for having me, Kellen. Emma, you had a couple of conversations regarding Nine's coverage of the tennis and Sevens of the Summer of Sport. Um, was there a general sense that these were successes in terms of eyeballs and the advertising opportunities that come with that? Absolutely. I think it was a ratings win for the network for Nine. Um, you know, obviously with me writing TV every day, I kind of have a grasp of of keeping track on, of, on you know, overall network shares um, and how the Australian went Open went, um, you know, for the duration of it. And every single day, without fail, uh, Nine really did come out on top um, with that overall network share. Uh, and I think, you know, just because also I think Ash Barty's victory when she played against the American Daniel Collins, uh, that was the highest rating Australian Open women's final in Oztam history, which is just incredible. And that overall network share was 68.1%. That actually that actually surpasses the AFL Grand Final last year and also the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony last year. So amazing result for them. Um, I think that final also had a BVOD audience of uh, 241,000, um, which is incredible, which is a big thing, uh, you know, coming into 2022. In terms of Seven's coverage of the cricket, obviously the – the result was sort of decided pretty early on. Did that have any impact in ratings for them? You would surely be a little bit disappointed if you were seven with how that ended up turning out. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was looking at the ratings every day and, you know, definitely wasn't something that I think seven would be particularly happy with. But, you know, I did speak to Kurt Burnett uh, yesterday, who is Seven West Media's Chief Revenue Officer and now most currently Director of Olympics. He said there's absolutely without fail, um, you know, COVID did severely impact the cricket, you know, not just in terms of the crowds not being able to attend these games, but, you know, player availability uh, and, you know, a, a, quite a few of them actually tested positive. So that was that was a huge impact on the game and the audience share. And, and Banksy, uh, it's the first season for 10 Viacom CBS's coverage of the A-Leagues across both free-to-air and Paramount+. Plus. The ratings, again, been a little bit disappointing. What's your take on that and what are you hearing on how they're kind of uh, feeling about their coverage so far? Yeah, Callum, look... Um we all saw the audience numbers in the TV black box report on the A-League with the headline, Alarming New Low. Um, I think it did raise some important questions, like such as why has the audience fallen, what's the strategy going forward, and how can 10 turn it around? I guess the A-League and W-League, they've, they've signed five-year contract with 10, and it's streaming subsidiary Paramount Plus worth about $200 million in cash and commercial contra, according to sources. Um Look, it seems with the A-League, they're playing the long game. Um, I spoke to uh, Beverly McGarvey, Chief Content Officer and co-lead at 10 Viacom CBS, and she told Mumbrella that subscription numbers for football on Paramount Plus have exceeded all expectations. Uh, the same can be said for matches that are live streamed on 10 Play, 
She said that while we would like better audiences on TAM, we knew that this would be a long-term proposition and commitment. Uh, she said, we're really happy with the direction of the game, where the game's headed, and we have a great relationship with the APL. We're confident that TV audiences of the game will only continue to grow. Now, look, I'm sure 10 can grow its A-League audience. I mean, they did this with the Big Bash. They've got a good track record, I think, for sticking with things and developing them. So they've like they've already grown the audience and fan base, I guess, from when Fox Sports had the rights. And uh, I've heard that it's the number one subscriber acquisition driver for Paramount+. Plus. Um, so, look, I think they will take a further hit when the big codes return, like the NRL and the AFL, but 10's committed to football in Australia for the next five years and, and they always do well with these big national matches. And I guess these days you don't have to choose one sport over another. You can watch them all when you want to watch them. Yeah, it's it's it, it's obviously great having those national matches. You know, you'd just be hoping for a few more that aren't at 2.30 in the morning like it was overnight. Just one last one on Seven before we shoot off to the interview, M. There were reports that Seven might be making a play to win back the tennis. Any word on that? Well, you can imagine I uh, when I when I approached Seven for a comment, it was uh, no comment <laughs> for whether they were taking back the rights for the Australian Open. Uh, no surprises there. Uh, some industry insiders and sources, you know, have hinted that they kind of planted that story themselves, but we'll just, we'll just move on from that. Coming up next, I'll be chatting to Zenith's Nikki Scriven. CEO of Zenith Media Australia, Nikki Scriven, welcome to the first Mumbrella cast of the year. Thank you very much for having me. So as we were just talking, um, off air, uh, Michael Rubello, CEO of uh, Publicis Australia, was our last guest of the year. So I guess we're following on where we uh, where we left off. Um, Michael spoke uh, in December about the group collaboration that has kind of fostered across Publicis in 2021 with that sort of power of one model. How how does this really kind of play in with some of those recent Zenith uh, client wins, which we saw at the back end of last year? Um, yeah, look, I think we've got our power of one model down pat. It's not something that's happened overnight. It's actually been four years in the making um, and it's really working. What we're seeing is um, many of our clients are requiring more services and certainly throughout um, COVID over the last couple of years, you know, our mantra was we have everything internally that, that a client would need and you don't need to go outside, you know, look within the group and collaborate within the group. So I think it really, um, the momentum was there over the past couple of years, but it really, really came to light throughout COVID. And that's why we saw such significant growth, not just locally, but globally through publicists. Yeah, and I, I guess in terms of um, bringing a lot of capabilities under the, the the single house, how does that work in terms of finding the right agency for the right client? Um, for example, uh, in the case of Subway, as far as I understand, it wasn't a pitch. Um, so has the client already decided that they want to bring up bring it across into the group? And then obviously, you guys won Subway in that in that sense. Is that uh, how, how does that kind of play out? Um, well, look, obviously Subway was already working with Publicis Worldwide in Brisbane and there's a very strong relationship there. Um, Simone War and myself had been talking for six months um, about Subway as a, a client that would be ripe for a power of one model. 
Um, and so, you know, it was something that we had been planning and, and you know, des- designing a model that would really work for them. And then it just came down to timing. There was a few changes and, and the timing was right. And, uh, you know, we put something in front of them, which was really appealing and they decided to go for it without a pitch. So um, from our point of view, a brilliant way to, to win a client um, and a great way to, you know, set the foundation for a fabulous partnership moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting. Last year, we saw a number of those kind of big global um, pitches from some of those huge clients like uh, Mercedes and Coca-Cola, where they are kind of increasingly looking to bring their services um, under under one ho- holding group. Um, also, last year, I think a bit of a trend emerging of these sort of um, client ass- or account assessments without the pitch and kind of just assessing who the right option is. Do you think that this is something that's going to continue? We're looking for this approach more. Are you finding sort of um, when pitching or not even pitching, um, they're looking to find that complete solution already in mind? Um, I think, yeah, more and more clients are looking for that. I think um, we we all have meeting fatigue and if you have multiple um, partners and suppliers, then you're in multiple different meetings. And I think... The appeal of a, an integrated and power of one model um, that we've certainly experienced is the opportunity to, you know, brief a campaign or a strategy or, um, you know, lock in on a, um, a whole brand proposition together and jump from the same position. And I think um, the landscape's changed so fundamentally and um, data is such a huge, data and analytics is such a huge part of what we bring to the table through media. And so you need to jump from that position collectively and bring your sort of brand strategists and comm strategists together with your media strategists so that, um, you know, we're, we're using data to inform our insights and then build strategy from there that's actually going to resonate and connect with consumers. And it, I guess if, if it is more of an industry trend, is there something in particular that Zenith and uh, I guess more widely obviously as a group approach um, publicists are doing that sort of differentiates you in market? Um, look, as I said earlier, it's four years in the design and I know a lot of other holding groups are talking about it, but it's in our DNA and, you know, we we started by creating solution hubs and that was not easy. You know, we typically would compete, you know, yet probably even three or four years ago, one of my closest partners was Starcom and, you know, working so closely with Toby Barber, who was the CEO at the time. And, you know, before that we would have been huge competitors. So I think that collaboration really started four years ago when we moved into the media and the comms um, and the digital transformation solution hubs. And then it was once we'd made that first step, then it was much easier to come together under a whole group um, under Mike's leadership. Um, I think, you know, credit to Mike, he brings us all together and we have created a publicist strategy that all of the brands buy into. And actually, we really like each other you know, we all work so well together and we build on each other's ideas and, you know, we bring the right services to bear for our clients. Some of that is capability, some of that's conflict, um, you know, in terms of who the right partners are across the group to come together. But um, ultimately, we're very, very connected. We collaborate and we really like each other. So it makes it easy. That does make it certainly easier. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, you know, that you do have Michael as the, the sort of um, CEO across all agencies in Australia, which obviously is not um, as common. Um, you know, if you're looking at some of the other groups, they kind of split media and, uh, and, and creative and everything else kind of 
um, segmented. How do you, do you think that plays at all into, um, I guess, fostering those relationships? And is that sort of something that Michael likes to focus on? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's the design. And a couple of years ago, almost probably three years ago now, I was at um, our global conference and spent a bit of time in Paris. And you know, you have a look in Paris where head office is, and you you see what the future is going to look like. And there was a group CEO, and so I picked it before it happened, probably a year before it even happened, because you know we'll, we'll test things under the watch of of head office. So we could kind of see that that's where it was going. But because we'd created the solution hubs first it enabled us to move to that. Um, and, you know, if you work in media or you work in creative, you typically stay in your lane, whereas what we're all doing right now is learning from each other in a really powerful and compelling way um, because we don't have those silos that we we sit inside of just media or creative. We're learning each other's craft all the time and that's incredibly powerful when you look at um, data and analytics and digital transformation, being able to be in the same room and strategizing with sapient and, and digitas is incredibly powerful it's, it's interesting something you just said there about um kind of going to the head office and seeing that as the future i would have kind of thought that it would be the other the other way around where they kind of use the 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 kind of global outpost as testing grounds for some of the more innovative things that they're looking at so i guess that yeah that's a really interesting insight there um just moving on, I know one thing we discussed um, at the end of last year, um, Zenith announced Zen Academy with um, the pilot program coming into action at the start of this year. Uh, talent has, you know, been one of those topics we've discussed on um, on Umbrella and across the industry. Uh, currently, well, a, a survey that was released at the back end of 2021 from the MFA census revealed that 12% of roles are currently vacant in the industry, which is a 19% rise year on year. This this new program, Zen Academy, which is a, is, is a response to that, aims at training your junior staff and developing the next generation of leaders um, consisting of uh, in-person and online training with six-month modules Um introducing those uh, juniors into different aspects of a media industry. Um, it would be great to kind of get your thoughts on the thinking behind the program and, first of all, how, how it's been going since the um, implementation. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm so excited about Zen Academy. It's been something that the executive team's been wanting to do for a couple of years in response to a talent shortage that happened even before um, COVID and has been exacerbated by COVID with border closures and and the inability to get um, international talent on our shores. Um, really, the the future of the industry is breadth of and, and the future of leadership in our industry is actually breadth of training. Um, this answers a question or sorry, answers a challenge, if you like, um, where young people kind of come into our industry and we throw them into boring bog standard admin tasks and, you know, they get super excited about what they've learned at uni and what they're going to learn as a career in media and then they're doing these really boring admin tasks and that's where um, we need to fast track that. They need to learn all the systems and tools and processes, but they want to learn. And so when we started looking at some of our exit survey data, the primary reason for leaving was just development and new, you know, learning new things. Um, the, the second highest reason for leaving was salary. Um, and then, you know, there were some personal reasons um, playing into that as well, you know, personal situations playing into it as well. So, you know, when we looked at all of this and then we looked at an ongoing talent shortage 
um, and then the COVID crisis where, you know, you can't get international talent. It's like, how do we build the leaders of the future? How do we fast track them and take away some of the painful stuff and, and offshore that where we can so that we can train them and move them every six months and keep their jobs exciting and interesting and keep them learning, but equally have this foundation of uh, capability so that they've got multiple career pathways so that they don't have to look externally for a new career. They can move from investment into planning, into strategy, into analytics um, and, and have, you know, see multiple pathways. And then when we take that through the agency, some of our most incredible leaders are the ones that have worked in multiple departments. And I could cite so many examples. A big shout out to um, Katie McElroy, who's one of my absolute little legendary superstars and no one's allowed to steal her. Um, but, you know, she has she has moved through digital, through strategy, um, into client leadership, and she's just incredible. And, and these are the leaders of the future. These are the future CEOs that have all of that knowledge and, and breadth of understanding to join the dots and see the future and solve problems for their clients. And that's where Katie absolutely excels. And, and so, you know, for us, we just want to create more Katies. Yeah. <laughs> and Zen Academy is our answer to that. That's the start. That's the foundation. I, I find it a really fascinating program because um, from, from the, the moment I, I heard it, it kind of reminded me of an approach that hasn't really been seen in advertising and something more akin to, you know, working in civil service or government jobs where you kind of are introduced to a, a scale of things and then, you know, you do end up having this workforce that that stays with the company for a while, stays within the industry. You know, if if, if it was going to be successful, would would you not then? Um, you know, it's, it's obviously titled Zen Academy. If you're you're in a group, would you not have to share the answers with everyone else? <laughs> Great question. I need to play the politically correct game on that one. Yes, absolutely. Look, so much of this foundational work was done in our investment team where, um, you know, under Lizzie Baker's leadership, she and her team created Investment Academy. Um, we have some of the most complex buying assignments um, on behalf of our clients with some pretty full-on buying KPIs and malice clauses. And so we need to make sure that our people are very well trained um, and and very capable. And so there was some fabulous work done in that space. And, and yes, the group are, are rolling out those training modules um, across other agencies in the group. And that's the benefit of, um, you know, of Publicist Group and the way that we operate. We don't need to duplicate. Um, you know, we, we do share and it, it allows us to also move talent across brands as well. So, um, yes, absolutely. Um, this is something I've been wanting to do for a while. It'll pilot in Zenith. It'll absolutely roll out through Publicis. But yeah. at least we get to do it first. And you get to keep the name. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it'll be Publicis Academy. We all know that. But you know what? Um, I'm happy that it starts with us because, you know, we get to to test it and trial it and roll it out. And, and once it's a great success, then, yeah, we'll share it across the group. No problem. And, you know, we'll be the benefactor of other amazing things that are happening in the group in other brands as well. Yeah. And an, a, another interesting statistic that came out of that um, that Media Federation Australia census was that 17% of the industry were leaving, um, well, the, sorry, agency department departures were leaving the industry completely, which is a, you know, a pretty significant number and something that you're obviously trying to tackle here. Do you think this is potentially a result of them not coming into those correct pathways? Because obviously, you know, when you come in, you want to be able to find uh, a job that you really love. And, you know, we have had 
I think in 2021 was it was the year of you know company-wide initiatives and those were kind of focused on staff retention but it, a lot of them from 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 what it seemed like were on a more personal level you know you had um you had like maternal leave offering increased increased leave and being able to work somewhere in the world but not so much focused on the actual job itself or working the job do you think this is kind of going to help progress something changing in the industry about actually enjoying the, the the industry that you're in yeah look i think i mean there's there's so many facets to this i think it's really important that people coming into our industry can see a pathway that appeals to them and can see a, a, a career opportunity that appeals to them to give you a sense of the scale we have 442 training modules in this program now that sounds overwhelming and you know someone might go oh my god i don't want to do 442 training modules but the way that the team has designed this is we can sit with our talent identify their gaps and basically do a drop down um you know menu of what do they need next and what's the timeline and we have what we call a zen pass which gives them accreditation um, numbers and there's a goal for each of them so within six months if they hit all their training and their accreditation and they're you know it's a, a bit of a 50 50 split of training and working so they're um, embedding what they're learning you know with client work at the same time and so we've increased our coordinators to um to launch this program and give them the time to dedicate to training then they'll get a, a, um, a pay rise and then they move within six months. So every six months they're moving and they actually get a pay rise. That addresses a lot of the challenges with young people entering our industry that want to be earning more money and want to see progression. It also answers the challenge of giving them new things to learn and, and um, you know, to spend six months and go, actually, I really enjoyed investment um, trading, so I want to focus on this or, you know, I love social media or, or, or whatever it is. As they move up, if you've experienced every facet of digital, then you're a great performance director candidate. And if we look at what's happened in the industry where there's been such a talent shortage, particularly in digital with people fast-tracked way too quickly, they don't actually have the skills and the capability to, ex to excel and to lead. And so what this will do is build that beautiful base of knowledge and capability, allow people to specialise, but then, you know, step sideways as well as up for progression to round out their careers and their capability and set them up for huge success as leaders. Um, I think, you know, some of the reasons why people are leaving the industry is not just that they're not finding what they like. I think they're getting burnt out because there is such a talent shortage. And so this is our way to, you know, bring people straight out of uni, wrap them under our wings, look after them, make sure that we're we're connecting and spending the time with them and that there is really good senior oversight on their training and development, not just expecting, you know, our managers and, and executives in the industry who haven't had good solid management training to teach the newbies coming in. So, you know, it kind of addresses so many challenges in the industry for us. Um, the amount of work that's gone into this is just phenomenal. Um, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm so incredibly proud of the work that my executive team has yeah. done to pull this together. And I guess from a kind of um, another angle to that, the, the sort of uh, the application process or is there any ways that it's going to address some of the sort of demographic issues in, in the industry and in that sort of selection process and then, you know, keeping those people and pushing them into those kind of more executive positions or management roles? 
Yeah. Look, um, I mean, diversity and inclusion is incredibly important to us. I would love to see many more Indigenous people in our business. We are um, engaging a cross-publicist group in um, cultural capability training, which has been an absolute game changer for our organisation, just in, in the understanding and also in how we can um, work with different suppliers to help us bring um, Indigenous people into our business and, and, you know, look after them, train them, nurture them through and ensure that we've got, um, you know, great diversity across the business. I think as a global organisation, um, you know, the the power of tapping into people from different nationalities is just so inspiring. We are so connected as a, a company globally. But, you know, where I've worked in other corporate organisations where there's been quotas, you don't feel that in a global network because you just are multinational. And, um, you know, there's just so so much breadth and colour and um, and diversity of thinking and experience and, and ideas. And, you know, that really comes to life for clients. And, and in a multicultural uh, nation like Australia, we need that. So, Nikki, I know we've managed to get through this interview so far without really touching on um, on COVID too much. Uh, uh, to leave on a positive note, um, let's let's assume from here on out, 2022 stays COVID-free. How do you think uh, that kind of that looks like for the industry come December? Oh, if only it would be COVID-free. I feel like we've got, you know, the heightened state of infection at the moment. Let's hope it's uh, losing its its virility, if you like, and, and, you know, we can all come out the other side. Look, I think um, COVID is going to continue to challenge us. Um, what we've learned over the last couple of years is, you know, I don't want to I don't like the word agility. In fact, it was one of the, the words I think I said should be retired. So <laughs> let's not go there. Um, but, you know, I think we, we've resilience has got to be part of what we do. We've got to make sure that we're connecting in with our, our people and that they're okay. And I think the challenge of online, um, you know, working means you can't actually pick up some of those signals that you might if you're face-to-face. So, you know, our focus is we want to get back to the office, but we're not going to mandate it. Um, it's not going to be full-time back in the office, but we know that um, there's a beautiful flex somewhere in between and, and we'll work with our people to make sure that that's right for everybody. Um, but we're fundamentally as human beings, we're, we're social beings, right? We want to interact with each other and that's really critical in this industry to, to build and grow um, ideas and do the best work for our clients. So, look, our focus is let's get back to the office as soon as we can, but we also need to make sure that we're very carefully managing the business continuity risk and if we all flood back to the office and everyone gets sick at the same time, then the, the agency falls over and so does many uh, very important campaigns for our clients. So, you know, we're treading carefully. We know it's going to be a bit of both um, and we'll just continue to flex as we need to. Yeah, I think um, carefully but, uh, but confidently and hopefully. Uh, hopeful is the way to go forward. So, um, Nikki, thank you so much for being our first uh, guest of the year. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat. And that's it for this week. Please make sure you subscribe to the Mumbrella Cast on your favorite podcast platform and check the website for more content and updates. Emma Banksy, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. See you next week. Bye.